And welcome, welcome, welcome to the Premier League Proven Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff, here with my co-host and brother, Kevin. And welcome to this episode, which is just everything that you need to know about soccer and how it's set up. Uh, we want to basically, basically make sure that everybody's on the same page and so that you're able to follow the game, not just when you're watching, but also when people are talking about it pre-game, post-game, whether you're reading your athletic subscription, reading ESPN, what have you, everything that you need to know about how the game is set up, especially the way that it, the ways in which it contrasts kind of American sports setups is what you're going to get here. So we broke this into two parts because there's a lot of information that we're going to hit you with if there's anything that you think we're missing anything you're curious about please send us a message get in touch with us we want to make sure that we're covering the stuff that you guys are interested in but first the most important thing because without this you're never even gonna follow the sport kevin how do you actually watch the premier league that is a great question and funnily enough it's actually easier to watch the premier league in the states than it is in england um, England, like some American sports, I guess it's a little bit less so nowadays, but they have some blackouts, so you can't really catch all the games if you're living there. Uh, I think the reasoning behind some of that is they want to make sure fans are going to the games, and also they're worried about their lower leagues. They're worried that uh, if all the Premier League games were on TV, a lot of the fans would tend to stay at home and watch rather than sl- supporting their local clubs. Is that the case? I'm not really sure, but at least that's what the thought process is over there. But luckily for us and probably a lot of you that are listening to this in the States, it's actually pretty easy to watch uh, the Premier League here. And really all you're going to need is USA and Peacock. Uh, If you have those two things, you're going to be able to stream every single game in the Premier League, which is a pretty cool thing to be able to do. Yeah, and really the 10 a.m. slot, so when you think about – when are Premier League games actually on? Saturday and Sunday is basically most of the games. You'll have an occasional weekday game, which we'll also talk about. But 10 a.m. on Saturday, and this is East Coast time that we're talking about. Obviously, you'll have to, to adjust that accordingly. You can get up pretty early uh, if you're living on the West Coast. But on 10 a.m. is the 1 o'clock for like NFL. It's a, simil- it's a similar type of thing. Most of the games, maybe half the games in every week, uh, will basically be happening at that 10 a.m. slot. There's usually a 7.30 a.m. game on Saturday as well, and then usually kind of a marquee matchup 12.30 game. Uh, again, those are all East Coast time. So on Saturday, it's really a 7.30 game, a slate of games at 10 a.m., and then a kind of marquee matchup at 12.30. Um, Sunday looks a little bit similar, except there's fewer games, and that is more of a 9 a.m. on Sunday and then 11.30 a.m. So if you're a fan of NFL, you're a fan of Scott Hansen, you like the red zone, you know, you, you basically wake up at 9 a.m. on Sunday, start watching soccer, and uh, and off you go. Yeah, our dad is absolutely famous for this after we got him in the Premier League uh, probably the last decade or so. He, he frequently tells us that he wakes up and ends up spending 12 hours on the couch watching uh, all the soccer games and a nice transition into uh, the NFL slate. But, you know, if you're if you get into the Premier League, you can pretty much turn your entire Sunday into foot into footy, um, both versions of football. Um you know, you, I love my fantasy too. I will say that the fantasy in, in soccer does exist. It's not quite on the same level as the NFL, but 
Either way, there's also some Monday games now, too. They've kind of copied the NFL in some ways and and created this thing called Monday Night Football here as well. Um, The problem with those games is they're often at 3 p.m. if you're on the East Coast, which on a Monday, I think a lot of us will be working, have other stuff going on. So it can be a little bit tough to catch every single game, but most of the week games weekday or weekend games you're going to catch on to. Now, if you're paying a little bit of attention to the season, which is coming up very soon, a lot of the talk that you're going to be hearing right now is about transfers. Yeah, it's a little bit different than what you're going to see and hear uh, from the States. Usually, if you're hearing trade rumors from American sports, they're pretty close to a sure thing, or at least you know it's pretty confident that that thing is happening in some sense of the words. But over in Europe, I put journalism in air quotes. Uh, these guys are really making up stories a lot of the times. There's really no fact checking. Uh, I think he said it right when we were having a discussion earlier. It's the original fake news. There really is no barrier to entry on who can publish a story. So you have to take everything you hear over there with a little bit more than a grain of salt. And it's it's actually really funny. There's all these guys on Twitter and stuff that will claim to be ITKs or in the nose. And these are people like people's barbers or it's a photographer or, you know, some guy who just works at a sandwich shop. And he'll be like, oh, I like I'm in I'm right outside the, the Tottenham ground selling sandwiches. And I saw this dude from Brazil like he must be coming on a transfer and having a medical. You know, that was a little bit crazier back in the day when uh Basically, you know, all of this stuff wasn't all over Twitter and, you know, transfers could kind of happen more out of the blue. But there's all kinds of crazy transfer rumors but, uh, all season. It even gets down to the point. I think Arsenal fans are probably the most famous for this, but basically they'll be tracking people's flights. So they'll know people's agents. They'll know, you know, all where the players headed and they'll basically be tracking their flight up to London. Everyone's following everyone's uh you know, spouse or partner on social media so that they can see where they've been tagged recently. So, you know, transfer season gets a little bit crazy, partly because there's just so many players in the entire world that like you could literally be buying anybody. And one of the most interesting parts about it uh, is that you're actually a lot of times just buying some random 18 year old kid from like Argentina or some like 20 year old French guy who no one's ever heard of. And when you've never heard of a guy before and you spend big money on him, you you kind of just hope and pray and assume that they're going to be the real deal. Oh, yeah. You get on YouTube quickly and you watch these compilations of these guys. Usually uh, there's a period, I don't know why, but for five years, every single YouTube highlight was set to Despacito. Uh, it just kind of became a running joke. But uh, yeah, quickly, you're this 18-year-old. You're now the biggest fan of him, even though you didn't know who he was 30 minutes ago. And... Just so you're clear, and this on the face of it does sound a little crazy. It just becomes the normal. But really, when you're paying a transfer fee, so when somebody says, you know, Harry Kane cost $80 million, what they're saying is that the right to buy, right to pay Harry Kane a contract is what is being sold, right? So basically, you're paying another team for his registration rights. If somebody's in contract with someone else, you have to buy their rights. And then once you've agreed that deal, paid the other team $80 million, now you can pay Harry Kane a huge salary and his contract. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of like a two-step negotiation. You know, the, the first level is, well, usually the first level is kind of talking to that team and making sure that they're on board with it. And then you need to start talking to the player. And you'll kind of see this a lot of times. Uh, players who kind of want to move will say they've already talked to the club they want to get sold to and have already negotiated that and to try to put some pressure on their team. Uh, to sell them. So it's it's a little bit different than what you see in American sports as far as trades. But just like Jeff said, you're paying for the right uh, to give that player a contract. And, you know, you really, when you're looking at these fees, you also have to be conscious of how much the pay- players are actually getting in wages. Um, because every contract, unlike in U.S. sports, has a transfer fee part of it and then the wage part of it. And so, Wages are and salaries are basically reported in a strange way in uh, in Europe. If you're coming from American sports, it's basically in a weekly uh, payment. So somebody will be on a hundred thousand pounds a week, and just so you know, the pound is a little bit stronger than the dollar. It's usually about one pound is one point three dollars or so. Um, but so you'll be basically Harry Kane was bought for fifty million, and he's on two hundred thousand pounds a week or something like that. Obviously, to extrapolate that out to a year, you multiply it by about 50 and check my math. But that's probably if he's on 200,000 a week, that's about 10 million a year. Um, if you in the 200,000 is kind of the top end for what most teams are kind of willing to pay. Some of the bigger teams will pay a little bit more than that. But overall, you can kind of see that a lot of these Premier League players generally make significantly less than a lot of the really good players in American sports, especially in sports like baseball. Um, or your quarterbacks in football, or really any basketball player who get incredible amounts of money. Um, But you really also have to look at kind of both the wage structure and the transfer fee to really understand how much somebody is being uh, paid and how much they're really going to be earning on the deal. Yeah, I think a really good example, uh, if you follow the sport at all, Uh, Holland is the striker now for Manchester City, and he got sold from a German club called Dortmund. And on paper, you look and you're like, hey, he really didn't cost that much. I think it's about 50 or 60 million for the transfer. But if you kind of peel that layer back, uh, you quickly realize that I think his agent got 30 or 40 million uh, euros for it. Yeah, and his dad, who's like used to play in the Premier League, they pay all the, you know, they might pay the transfer fee, then they pay the agent fee. And trust me, agents are not regulated in Europe like they are in America. Uh, You'll see that in soccer, a lot of things are not very well regulated because it's kind of an international game. But yeah, you'll see all these stories of like, they're paying the guy's dad, they're giving his mom and and his brother a, a gardening job in the club so that they can basically pay them under the table. They'll bring a Brazilian guy and make sure he's not homesick, put him in a house, give his parents jobs, you know, the whole deal. You know, when Lionel Messi was actually brought over from Argentina by Barcelona, they basically sh- brought him over, shot him up with steroids because he was way too small um, and he was going to end up being like five feet tall. Um and then he was like 12 years old and they brought his whole family, his dad, his mom, gave his dad a job, basically set them up because they wanted Lionel Messi basically to end up the greatest player of all time. Turns out a little bit of those steroids and a job for dad actually turned out to be a pretty good idea. Yeah, so the big takeaway that I'm having from things about transfer is one, the average sports fan over in the UK is significantly better at math than I am. And two, it really pays to be a family of a player. So if you have any good 
nephews or kids out there, hey, you never know. You might be gardening and uh, getting some big paydays that way too. We're going to talk about why that's difficult to do in the U.S. because our the way that we actually train talent is terrible over here compared to the rest of the world. But just the last few things uh, on transfer and wages, you'll often see that uh, you might ask, is there such thing as free agency? Uh, there is. Uh, just like in the NFL, it didn't start existing until the 80s and 90s or so. Uh, but really, if your contract runs down, you can actually uh, – join whatever team that you want to in the future. That does happen. It's not infrequent by any stretch of the imagination, but most teams will want to try to sell their players before that, that, that happens because they basically will turn into a, you know, from a $50 million asset uh, down to a $0 asset. So uh, the teams generally don't let players run out their contract, but it definitely does happen. Um, And it's another piece of, kind of trying to figure out everything but kevin what is like what stops teams from just spending infinite amounts of money though uh well realistically or on paper because you know realistically uh there's some leeway in it Uh, but there is something called financial fair play does exist to try to kind of stagnate the amount of money that a team can just kind of inject into their squad Yeah, and if you listen to the History of the Premier League podcast, you'll see that basically Chelsea and Manchester City basically bought their way to the top in some sense. Now, it's hard. You can't fully begrudge them that, but they came in, spent extremely crazy for the time, amounts of money, basically more money than their entire club was making in revenue that year in the transfer window. And again, that's in the transfer window. They then had to pay all those players as well. Um, But they... They ended up winning pretty quickly. They won Premier Leagues. Both teams have won Champions Leagues. And all the big boys now, including Manchester City and Chelsea, have basically pulled up the ladder behind them. Um, and they've created this FFP, Financial Fair Play, basically to try to – the benefit of it is essentially to prevent clubs from going broke, which, to be fair, happened all the time. There's the you know the lower leagues of English football is essentially a graveyard of uh, – of uh you know teams that were run into the ground financially that's leeds united portsmouth uh all kinds of teams um so ffp kind of basically limits the amount of uh in the negative that you can be in any given time frame and so in theory it prevents you from actually failing as a football club Uh, but it also does limit how much extra money an owner can basically put in um that obviously in some ways sounds good, but what that actually means is that if you're a smaller club, the amount of money that you can pay for players is limited by your revenue. So it's hard to get good players because the good players cost a lot of money, but those good players are really the only way that your team's going to get way better so that you can get into the Champions League, so that you can get more fans, so that you can grow commercially. So, And the only way to do that is doing, you know, have more revenue. So it's kind of this vicious circle where you need more revenue but you can't get the players to basically generate it so a lot of these teams be this kind of makes it so a lot of teams are either buying teams and that's kind of the big teams uh in the premier league all the famous teams that you've heard of those are all teams that want to buy players they basically are always in the net negative and transfer fees and then there's a lot of selling teams 
that's a lot of teams in the lower levels of the Premier League, a lot of teams outside England who are basically making a ton of the revenue that they generate every year is basically by selling tons of players for 20 million here, 30 million there. And if they get really lucky, they get an academy kid who they get to sell for 80 million. Yeah, it's a really a little bit of a different way of doing salary cap of American sports that kind of exists, but not really. And just like Jeff said, it's a little bit tough uh, with so many international organizations. Sometimes it's even harder to enforce some of the financial fair play stuff, you know, which we've seen here over the last couple of years with Chelsea and City. You know, there's there's some rumors that City wasn't going to be able to play in the Champions League about two seasons ago, but of course. But they can buy all the best players. They can also buy all the best lawyers. I'll tell you that. Exactly, exactly. And guess what? Those guys probably have some uh, some pretty big signing bonuses and contracts for them as well. Uh, but another thing that we kind of want to touch on that is a little bit different than what you see in American sports, I think is personally one of the coolest aspects is how the loan system works. So how a loan system works is kind of think of it if you have some prospects or some good players that are young, uh, but they're not quite good enough to make your first team or they're not quite good enough to get enough game time to help them develop. And you don't want to just kind of relegate them to just practicing. They need some game time at a high level. Uh, So what you can do is kind of do the best of both the worlds for the team that is loaning out the player and the team that is receiving the loanee. And so the team that's loaning out the player They will usually do this to the lower levels of English football, so down to the championship or League One or League Two, or even at times abroad. And they're basically going out and telling this team, hey, I'm going to give you this player for the season. Uh, You can use him in your team. I want you to use him in your team. That way he gets to play at a little bit higher level than what he would with just the practice squad. Uh, and then afterwards, you know, we'll kind of reevaluate him after the season's over when he comes back and see if he's good enough uh, to be ready to play in our first team. And if you're the team that's receiving the loanee, you know, you probably don't have as big a budget. So you have a little bit of worse players. So this 18 year old kid, the 17 year old kid uh, might be better than your average player. So you're happy to kind of receive him that year so you can kind of help you move up whatever league you are in. So it's a pretty cool system. There's a lot of different ways teams structure loans too. Uh, you know, the team that is receiving loanee can pay some of the, the guy's salary. Um, there's also loan to buys, which is kind of think of it as a trial where I'll say, hey, I'm going to loan this player to me. At the end of the year, I kind of get uh, the first right of refusal to sign this guy permanently. And if I didn't really like him while well, he's being tried out here, then I'm just going to say no thanks. And he goes back to his home club. So it's really interesting kind of lever that teams have to kind of play with their roster and develop some talent. Yeah. And loans can be actually really fun because you can follow, you know, you'll have a reason to follow some random team in France or Italy uh, or in the lower leagues of England because a guy on your team that you're hoping in the future will end up being a, a mainstay of your first team uh, that, you know, you get to follow them all year, see how they do, watch them. There's a lot of ways that teams use the loan structure. Teams like Chelsea and City have kind of perfected this to generate money for their club. But the three main ways I'd probably think of it are, let's say, you know, back when Aaron Rodgers and Jordan Love were on the same team. 
Jordan Love just sat behind Aaron Rodgers. But in this system, with a loan system, they could have loaned him out to essentially a bad team in the NFL, and he would have got actual playing experience. And when he came back to the Packers after Aaron Rodgers left, he'd actually be have a lot more experience in the bank uh, and be – in theory, a lot more ready for that next jump up. You can also, let's say if Travis Kelsey on the Chiefs were to get injured, you can try to bring in another uh, tight end on loan from another team or something like that uh, to try to bolster your team or uh, reinforce your squad midseason. And then sometimes they use it if you can't really get rid of a player, but you don't really want to pay him anymore because he's not very good. You can kind of just loan him out to lower divisions and have somebody else pay him his salary for that year. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool little system there, but I think it's a good transition into talking about how do teams in the Premier League actually get their players. Um, there is no draft. That's, I think, one of the big differences from a lot of American sports, right? You're, you're always kind of looking to, to draft day. You're always trying to see you know, whether it's a sport like football where guys are always coming out of college or if it's a sport like baseball or hockey where guys are coming out of high school or junior leagues. It's, it's a little bit different. So you, almost all European teams have what are called academies. Yeah, and so you'll see five, six, seven-year-old kids that are basically going into these setups that are run by clubs that are extremely professional with the best coaches that money can buy, basically. These are guys that are in a system that is perfectly efficient at training them to be elite soccer players in the future. And these are kids that only think, eat, live, breathe soccer from an age of six years old. and. Almost everyone that you could think of that you watch playing in the Premier League came through one of these academies in whatever country that they are originally from. Um, You'll often actually see, you know, teams buying 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds from France or from other teams in Africa or things like that. It honestly is a little bit like human trafficking or something like that when you're kind of buying. Yeah, you're buying like some 16-year-old kid for a million dollars. Um, but, uh, they end up getting a decent money, a decent deal from that. But the incentive structure, uh, of all of the academy system is also really interesting because it changes the way that kids are actually developed, especially when you think about kind of what soccer is like in America, especially when we were growing up. Yeah. I mean, in the States, it's all about winning, right? You take the kids who mature the fastest and you put them up top or the kid who is, uh, you know, hit puberty at 10 years old and is 5'9", yeah, you put him up top and he wins every single header and great, you won your local tournament this year. Congratulations. But yeah, the, the academy system kind of twists that around because the incentive system is to develop the best talent that you can sell in the future. So instead of just worrying about winning, you're actually worrying about and focusing on development of players, which is probably why the U.S. is so far behind a lot of other countries in soccer. I know a lot of people like to say, oh, we have so many athletes that play so many different sports. And, you know, that is probably relatively true that you know some of our best athletes could be great soccer players i have no doubt of that in my mind but when you think about it there's you know over 300 million people in the states and then you have a team like iceland that has 300,000 people and you know, probably most of those kids are 
technically more proficient than the state. So you can't really use the numbers as an argument. Um, it's really because there are academies that are focused in getting these kids the best coaching um, at ages, you know, eight, 10, 11, rather than having some random kid's dad who just read soccer for dummies and doing glorified babysitting out there. Yeah. But you know, they, he wants to yell at you. So, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, but yeah, I, for some reason, Coaches in America kind of think that this is still football where they just want to get the biggest, fastest, strongest kids. And that's one of the actually the best parts about soccer is that literally just an average skinny 5'9 guy on the street that you would never peg as a professional athlete can literally be the best player in the world. Like that, every single body type essentially is functional in soccer. Um, And then, uh, yeah, as you said, one and a half billion people live in China and India and still their teams suck. Uh, for the international game because they basically just don't have good academy systems and good infrastructure. Do yourself a favor and Google Kevin De Bruyne, right? If you saw that guy on the street, you would say, who is this guy? He looks so unathletic, especially when he was younger. He's just a goofy looking guy, but he is a generational talent out there. And yeah, you just never would have pegged him for that if you just picked him off the street. Um, And the incentive structure is really just to drive that home in the academy system, the academy is trying to produce players so that they can a either end up on the the first team, and the first team means kind of the the main team, right? The the top level team in a club, so that'd be the team playing in the Premier League rather than the youth teams. Uh, but you're trying to get your academy guys to a play in the in the first team, or b if they're not quite good enough, sell them off for millions to some other team. So that can be a huge source of revenue. So they don't really care how much they're winning. They're all about developing the players and that can, that's only good for the players. Uh, The good thing about having a really good Academy, it's incredibly important because obviously that player is essentially free. You never had to buy them. You didn't have to pay a $70 million transfer fee for them. Uh, They grow up and you basically get all of their best years from when they're 18 years old and up. Uh, and the other big thing is it means so, so much when a local guy basically gets to be on the first team and play and, and win. It's really what soccer is all about. You know, you take a Steven Gerrard who's from Liverpool, who grew up from the age of six or something like that and played in Liverpool and every youth team for Liverpool. And then he ends up capping Liverpool so that they win the Champions League. You know, that guy goes down in history of the club in the annals as a legend in large part because he loves the team as much as the fans do. And there's great chance they're always saying, Harry Kane, he's one of our own. And that chant for every single homegrown guy is just those guys are the most loved players in the whole team. Uh, they tend to be pretty loyal as well. For example, take Harry Kane, who's a Tottenham kid growing up. He has stayed at Tottenham his whole career, even though Tottenham hasn't necessarily always, they've done pretty well, but not always been the best team during that era. Even though Harry Kane is the best striker probably in the world. And a lot of that is because he's from Tottenham. He cares about Tottenham. He has that connection with the fans and, So that is one of the most special things is just having that academy system. Imagine if your quarterback or your point guard was from the area that you are, grew up, went to the local high school that you did, and now is playing and captaining your team to success. It's just the best. 
Yeah, it's really cool too when you kind of see uh, once a player from the youth teams kind of make it, uh, especially with you know how many cameras there are out there now. You'll see these guys who are famous athletes now at age eleven, you know, wearing the same jersey that they're 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 wearing now, uh, but just as an eleven year old. And every single year, you just see them grow up in that same jersey. It's just really really cool, and yeah, it's just something a little bit different than having a player who, who comes in and it's a little bit different. There's, you know, pros and cons, but they have to like learn the culture, to learn the team culture, you know, what, what it means to the fans and kind of how to act versus a guy who was actually sitting in the stands, maybe next to you uh, when watching some games. I love it when like, there, there's always like a moment when a 17 year old scores and basically all the Academy kids usually get front row tickets somewhere or get to go in a stand and that kid will come on. And if he happens to score, he'll run over to all his buddies who he was playing with the youth team last week. I mean, these are, this is, a, it can happen where literally, uh, I, I think Marcus Rashford, when he came and burst onto the scene, he was still in high school, essentially equivalent. And he scored and he basically had homework that was due the next day and he still have to go to class. And it's like, it's just, it's actually really cool. <laughs> Um, and something that you don't see in the U.S. really. Uh, so, you know, and as Fergie always, Ferguson, if you listen to the Premier League history part, as Fergie always said, if you're good enough, you're old enough. So you'll see 16, 17, 18-year-old players playing in the Premier League. Uh, and really, those guys can turn professional really quick. Uh, so this is the first part of a, uh, of kind of the basics of things that you really just ought to know about the European game. Uh, next time, we're going to get into some other leagues. And if you ever had any questions about what is the championship, what is the Champions League, Europa League, Conference League, FA Cup, League Cup, you know, what are all the other leagues in Italy and Spain? How do all those work? We're going to bring you everything that you need to know on that end, as well as to make sure that you understand kind of the difference between club and international soccer. And if you want a little bit of an intro to formations and how to watch the game, what to look for, be sure to check out our next episode, part two here. Yeah, actually, before we sign off here, what you just triggered in my mind is a story. I think you may have told me when this broke out, uh, but there was a guy for United, uh, was probably like, 15 years ago, uh, Adnan Yanazai, and there's like a, a story. I don't know. Oh, I love that guy. Yeah, they're probably. I sing, I sing that to all my friends here who didn't follow soccer and they all know his. <laughs> but he has a, you know, the story of uh, when he was, I think he was like 16 or 17 and was still coming onto the scene. He just got from the youth teams and brought up to the senior team and he ends up scoring a goal. And so, you know, with scoring goals and being on the senior team, comes fame so there's a famous story where you know he is going on a date with a supermodel and funnily enough he did not have his license so his mom actually had to take him and his date in her car and drive him to nando's and i know there's a few nando's now in the states but think of it as kind of a fast casual kind of a a little bit nicer than Chipotle level. It's an upscale. It's an upscale Chick Fil A. Yeah, basically. exactly. Uh, but yeah, so he takes this model. You know, Not that upscale. <laughs> he takes this model that his mom is more or less chaperoning uh, to a uh, yeah an upscale Chick Fil A for for their first date. So uh, just like Jeff said, it's pretty funny and a little bit different than what you see in American sports. Yeah, that probably didn't work out for him, but I'm sure uh, I'm sure he was fine after that. But anyway. Uh, be sure to check out our next episode. Please subscribe. 
if you like what we're bringing to you, um, please reach out to us. Let us know what we can talk about, things that you're interested in. And uh, signing off, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Peace.